in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, let me pray, asking for God's help before we expound God's Word. Father in heaven, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as we come, Lord, we pray that we would be like the Thessalonian believers, that as we hear this word preached this morning, that we would not receive it as mere words of men, but that we would receive it as what it truly is, the words of our Most High God. And so, Lord, we come asking that You would enable us by Your Spirit to hear these words rightly. We know that the Lord Jesus often commanded that those who have ears, let them hear. And Lord, we long to hear from You. We long to hear Your Word expounded to us. We long to feast upon Christ. We long to hear the gospel. We long to be sanctified by your word, which is true. And we long to see sinners saved here in our midst. And so, Lord, would you give us minds able to comprehend this, your word? Would you give us hearts ready to receive it? Would you give us ears ready to hear it? We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Again, reading verses 11 through 15, focusing upon verse 15 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to his disciple Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever and ever. If you've been with us as we've journeyed through this uh, short book of the Bible, now for many weeks together, you remember all the way back in chapter 1, Paul has commanded his disciple Titus to move about every city on the island of Crete to plant good gospel-proclaiming, gospel-preaching churches so that the island of Crete might be impacted with the gospel. And if you've been with us as you've journeyed through all of these qualifications and characteristics of older men in the church and older women in the church and younger men in the church and younger women in the church, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, employees, employers, it seems as if Paul has commended this lifestyle of faithfulness and godliness to the entire congregation of God's people as they are gathered together in the local context. And even more, what you might remember is that at the very beginning of this book, all the way back in chapter 1, you remember that Paul has told Titus to put into order what remained there in verse 5 of chapter 1. 
And the first thing that he establishes there in putting the church into order is the appointment of elders. Is the appointment of elders. And he goes into almost what we might call a deep dive into what the qualifications of the elder is in the following verses. And that's something that needs to be remembered here when we move into chapter 2, verse 15. Because what we have here is Paul commending to Titus something that is a staple in Presbyterian government. We're a Presbyterian church. We believe in a Presbyterian government, which means that we believe in a plurality of leadership. A plurality of leadership. How discouraging would it have been for Paul to commend this momentous job to his disciple Titus. I want you to go throughout the whole island of Crete. I want you to plant churches. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to ensure that the people of God are living in ways of godliness. And by the way, you are going to do it by yourself. How would you feel? Quite overwhelmed, I would imagine. Probably quite discouraged very quickly, I would imagine. And so Paul wants Titus to understand, Titus, you are going to be about this mission, planning these churches, ministering in the local church context, appointing elders so that you will not have to do this alone. And so not only do we have a plurality of eldership, meaning that that sessions cannot be made up of one man, we're not bishop-like, Episcopalian in our understanding of church government, but we must have a plurality. There must be multiple men sitting upon this session acting as ruling elders for the spiritual oversight of the church. But not only do we have a plurality of eldership, we actually have a plurality of office. Have you ever thought about that? That it's just not elders who serve the church. It's not just elders who lead the church. It's actually elders and deacons who do so. A plurality of office, we might say, to ensure that the spiritual life and the physical life of the local church context might be met by men who are qualified and called and elected by the church. Qualified according to the Scriptures, called from a calling from our Lord and an election from God's people that have seen them, seen their lives, seen their qualifications, and who can commend them to be deacons and elders within the local church context. And so as Paul writes to Titus in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you, Yes, he's speaking specifically to his disciple Titus, who is acting as the minister of the local church context. But he is writing to Titus, knowing that Titus has an army of men behind him. Knows that he has elders who are guarding the pulpit, praying for their pastor, their fellow elder, who is going to be proclaiming the word in season and out of season. They are ensuring that that minister, Titus, will be about preaching the whole counsel of God. 
and that he has deacons who are giving hands and feet to these gospel proclamations each and every Lord's Day. And so as we look at verse 15, yes, it's a message specifically to Titus, but there's a plurality of leadership behind Titus that helps him understand or helps him to fulfill this God-given call from the Apostle. And that's the first thing I want us to look at, this call or this duty in which the Apostle Paul gives to his disciple Titus. If you look back at verse 15, it says, Declare these things. Now, it hopefully it's not that confusing to which things the Apostle Paul is commending for Titus to declare. He has given much instruction here in the first two chapters of this letter. He has, yes, told him to appoint elders, but not just any elders, but actually scripturally qualified elders. He has told Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, meaning teach what is true. The Bible is true. He has even said or exhorted Titus to ensure that the people of God, despite their age or their gender or their occupation, their status within local households and even within the church, make sure that they are living God-filled, righteous lives in the midst of the people of the island of Crete. He has given all of these exhortations for orderly local church context, and He has given all these exhortations for holy living for the everyday believer. And Paul is saying, you must proclaim all of these things. You must proclaim all of these things. Titus, you must speak to these things, and you must understand that it's your responsibility to preach, to announce, to reveal these things to the people of God. You are to take the Word of God, Titus, and you are to expound it in such a way that it is made clear for the people. And you are supposed to apply it in such a way that they can grab hold to aspects of the message and that they can by the power of the Holy Spirit, change the way in which they're living. This is the call. This is your duty, Titus, to declare these things. You are to be carefully and faithfully preaching the Bible, Titus, that gives the knowledge of the truth. But it's not just a simple statement in which the Apostle Paul makes here, is it? He actually gives us a little bit of commentary on how his beloved Titus is supposed to do this. You're to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now before we can even get to that little phrase, with all authority, think about what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus in this language of exhorting and rebuking. Because actually what we see here within this verse is that, that those two things, this exhorting and rebuking, is a part of the declaration. And so what one commentator says on this idea of exhort is that 
Titus is not just to preach the Bible faithfully, but he's supposed to do it with some sort of conviction. Some sort of conviction. The word exhort here in the Greek language, and I know that we're not Greek scholars or anything of the sort, but it's the same word, parakaleo. That means to come alongside, to advocate for. And Paul uses that word in verse 16 to to almost say, I am urging you, or I am appealing to you. I am exhorting you to live unto righteousness. I'm urging you to see Christ and Him crucified and believe and repent. What the Puritans would say many centuries ago is that they are wooing sinners to Jesus. Wooing sinners to Jesus. And so that means something for the pastor. That means something for the minister. He must preach a Christ that he has himself experienced. The minister must, must, much, or must preach a Christ that he has experienced. A minister, as he stands in the pulpit, he must preach about the forgiveness of sins as one who has experienced the forgiveness of sins. He must preach about the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as one who has felt the power of the Holy Spirit. He is one who is supposed to teach godly living as one who has lived a faithful and a godly life. He is supposed to say, wooingly, you come to this Jesus Christ who is high and lifted up in the Word because He is the Savior of sinners because He has saved my sins. You see, what's lacking in many pulpits today is a man who has walked with Christ. What's missing in many pulpits today is a man who has experienced Jesus. And you can tell, can't you? You can tell when when a man or a woman in the local church does not have the joy of the Lord as their strength. You can tell when a Christian man or woman is not walking in the power of a sound mind, but walking in fear. You can tell when a Christian man or woman is walking in anxiety instead of entrusting their daily lives to the sovereign, caring hand of their Lord and Heavenly Father. And you can tell when a minister preaches a message of the Gospel without really experiencing the Gospel. I don't tell this story as any sort of uh, self-promotion, but my first time preaching before our presbytery, we were still Palmetto Presbytery, uh, covering about half the state of South Carolina. And I was coming under care, and I was asked by the hosting church whether or not Uh, I would be willing, as a student under the care of our presbytery, uh, to preach. Uh, And and they asked if I would preach John 15. I'm the vine and you are the branches, and that exhortation to abide in me. And I preached, probably in the most feeble attempts, I preached. uh, Preached John 15 from the pulpit. I prayed and I walked down to the church pew as another 
minister began to fence the table for communion. And I remember my recording clerk, or our recording clerk of the Presbytery at that time, leaning up to me and saying, what I got from that message is I know that you abide in Christ. And I thought, as a 20-year-old kid, this is the best compliment I'll ever get after a sermon. Because he realized that as I exhorted those fathers and brothers of the faith, the of Palmetto Presbytery to abide in Jesus, the only reason that I had any hope for my salvation was because I abided in Christ. Any hope that I had for my sanctification was by the pruning hand of God the Father as He cuts away uh, those dead branches. And I thought to myself, this is what I have heard from the Puritans my whole time in seminary to experience Jesus and to preach in a way that does show that you have experienced it. And that's something to be said, I think, about the pulpit ministry. If the, if the exhortation is, beloved, walk with Christ, the minister should preach in such a way, he should exhort in such a way, he should woo and urge you in such a way that you would say, as the author of Hebrews has said, that man is worthy of imitation because he shows me the joy of walking with Jesus. But also you see that it says for Titus to rebuke. Rebuke, or maybe your translation says reprove. They're both in the same. Reprove, rebuke. What is being mentioned here by the Apostle Paul to Titus? What is the exhortation for him not only to woo sinners, to walk with Jesus, but to rebuke them? What the Apostle Paul is meaning is that the preacher should preach in such a way that the sinner's eyes are open to their sin. The preacher should preach in such a way that the sinner's eyes are open to his sin. That means the preacher can't always come into the pulpit and preach pleasing messages to the ear. But that when calling sin out from the pulpit is needed, he will do so. And again, you think about the message that, that the Apostle Paul has given to Titus. He is being sent into the island of Crete that is full of sinful sinfulness and full of wickedness and full of ungodliness and full of idolatry and if he was to preach a rebuking message by himself he would tremor in fear and he would run out the the sanctuary but with the army of elders and deacons standing behind him he is to rebuke with all authority call sin what sin is a debauchery, a cosmic treason, an iniquity against the holy laws of the Lord. And so, we've said this a number of times, Pastor Don and myself, we should, we should find it encouraging when we leave the church on the Lord's Day and we can say, that the preacher preached and the Holy Spirit has brought conviction upon my heart. We were talking about this in my Sunday school class this morning. We love to think about the Scriptures encouraging us. 
And we love to think about the Scriptures teaching us more about our Lord. But we shy away, don't we? When the Scriptures, especially as they're preached, begin to convict us of our sin. Growing up in the Pentecostal church, I've used this before, but growing up in the Pentecostal church, if the preacher preached a convicting message, the people as they left the sanctuary would often say, I should have wore my steel-toed boots this morning because, Pastor, you ran all over my toes. Well, it wasn't the pastor doing it. It was the Holy Spirit doing it. And we shouldn't shy away from the the heart-searching power of the Holy Spirit. No, we should be as the psalmist David, asking that he would do so. Begging and pleading that the Lord by His Spirit and by His Word would search our hearts, would try us and, and show us where we are guilty. Show us where we need to be walking more closely with our Savior. Knowing those sins, revealing to us those sins that we need to put to death. And so the opposite of the appropriate response of conviction is to to push away the Holy Spirit. The opposite response to conviction is to grow mad at the preacher. The opposite response required as the preacher rebukes is to leave the church. No, feeling the Holy Spirit's conviction should cause you to thirst for the Word even more. Because it's making you more holy. It's sanctifying you in the truth. God's Word is true. And then very quickly, I want to handle this phrase, authority. This phrase, authority. What gives Titus the right to rebuke? What gives Titus the the power to exhort? What gives Titus the duty to declare these things? Better yet, I should ask the question, not what, but who? Who does this? Whose authority is it? Well, Titus executes his ministry here on the island of Crete in the same way in which the elders and the deacons do. And we've already mentioned this briefly. It is the authority, the call of our God. As Titus is commanded in his duty to declare the gospel, to exhort and rebuke with all authority, he is doing so. The authority comes from his Lord. The way in which this is written, it says that Titus's authority is in the proper place or the proper order. And it's only proper because the Lord has established Titus, has called Titus, has called Titus to be about the preaching ministry, has called Titus to serve in a plurality and a parity of leadership within the church by the authority of God. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And why is that the case? Because we look upon our church leaders. 
We look upon our teaching elders and our ruling elders. We look upon our diaconate and our God who is worthy of our adoration, worthy of our respect, worthy of our obedience and submission, has now called these men, appointed these men, ordained these men to lead and to serve the church well. In the end of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is applying the, the doctrines in which he has just established, he says in Hebrews 13, 17, to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Your leaders who are God-appointed and God-called, your leaders who operate, who function in the authority of God, you are to submit to them because they are the ones who the Lord has put over this local church to keep watch over your souls and they will have to give an account for how they do so. And so respect them. Submit to them. Obey them. Don't be one who grumbles. Don't be one who complains. Don't be one who gossips. But, but obey. Submit to them in ways that brings them joy. Brings them joy. And so as we kind of move into our time of ordaining elders and deacons here within the life of the church, that's my exhortation to you, First Presbyterian Church. May we submit and obey our leaders in such a way that it's a joy for them to lead and to serve you. May we pray for them in such a way that they know the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit each and every moment of their service. And may we ask the Lord to impart them much wisdom and much grace as they do so. If the act of session would come, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll move into our time of ordination and installation. Act of elders, please come and uh, take your place on the front row. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, heed your word, that we would be a people who not only hear but do. We pray, Lord, that you would use this word to convict us where it ought to convict us, encourage us where it ought to encourage us for thy glory and for our good. Lord, use our time in the word to save sinners and sanctify believers. We ask this in Christ's name. And now as we move into our time of ordination and installation, would this be a pleasing time in your sight? Would we be encouraged as a church that you are working here within our midst, that you are giving us men who are newly ordained or being newly ordained and installed as church officers. You are continuing to grow your church here. And so, Father, we pray that we would be pleased with this time together. We pray, Lord, that we would pray for these men, that we would submit to these men as your word commands us to do and that we would be a congregation who these men counted a joy to serve and lead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.